fair warning, our guest in this episode uses some language and some themes that are a bit adult. So if you got little ones nearby, throw in some earbuds. Hi, I'm Eric Connor, Senior Instructor at New York Film Academy. And I'm Ariel Seagard, Acting Alum. And in this episode, we bring you one of the stars of Blade Runner, Sean Young. I think in Ridley's mind, Deckard was a replicant. That's the impression I got the entire time we were working. And it's one of Eric's favorite movies of all time. I mean, I've only seen him like five times. Liar. Ted. Mm. Twenty. All right, fine. A lot. I, I, I don't even know anymore. It's really good, though. She also acted with Harold Ramis and Bill Murray in Stripes. And starred opposite Jim Carrey in Ace Ventura and Kevin Costner in the fantastic thriller No Way Out. Worked with David Lynch on Dune, Oliver Stone on Wall Street, and was the original Vicki Vale in Tim Burton's Batman, but was recast due to an onset injury. But it's her work in Ridley Scott's Blade Runner that might be her crown jewel. It was quite a jump for a young actress whose initial game plan was to dance. Both my parents were journalists. Um, My dad, he was a producer for NBC in Cleveland and then in New York, and he had a very type A personality and was very um, prone to heart attacks, let's say. And my mom was a journalist, and um, I wanted to be a dancer. And I started dancing a little bit late at 14 in terms of classical training. I went to Interlochen Arts Academy, and at 18, I came to New York City, and I modeled for about a year, and I went, ugh, I didn't like it. Um, And my mom introduced me to an agent at ICM in New York because uh, she was a writer and a journalist, but she she had published two, two biographies and had an agent, and the agent introduced me to agents in the film department, and uh, and then a month after I was there, I got a job, and so they were encouraged, and so, and then like very quickly after that, I got Stripes, and then very quickly after that, I got Blade Runner, so it, it all happened very quickly, but I was really wanting to be a dancer. That was actually what I was intending in terms of growing up. And um, I don't know how this acting thing happened. (laughs) You know, I don't. I just, I I caught on quick. And I did study in New York. I did go to various different teachers and I did read and I did learn and, and, and I, you know, did my best and took advantage of the opportunities that came my way Um, on a set. My favorite place was always by the camera because my dad shot films. He had a Bell and Howell camera that you'd have to crank up, you know, and it had three different Angelou lenses. And he did all these family films of us, which you could actually see on my on my YouTube channel, which is MSY Pariah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I've edited together because it helps me express myself, uh, you know, in terms of like being a director. And he, he left me great footage. Her rapid ascension as an actress included working with two legendary teams in her first two roles, Merchant Ivory and the comedic duo Bill Murray and Harold Ramis. I did uh, a movie with James Ivory and, and uh, Ishmael Merchant, who's now dead, but... It was called Jane Austen in Manhattan, and it wasn't a very good 
picture, but they went on to do a room with a view and a lot That's of right, other yeah. really nice pictures. And they had done Shakespeare Walla before that or some, something like that. And that was my very first picture. The second one was Stripes. You pretend there's a force field all around your body and you try and get as close to each other as possible mm -hmm. without actually touching. Mm -hmm. That was a funny picture. And then, um, and then Blade Runner, yeah, third film. The problem with early success is it's not very edifying. I mean, in the sense that, you know, when, you, when you're 19 years old or 20 or whatever it is, and you're in the same playing field as everybody else and you're all sort of in the same boat, you get your lessons and you accept them and you learn them. When you get lifted up to some sort of other level, you don't get the lessons that you would have gotten at 19 or 20 like everybody else. So then you have to kind of fall from grace a little bit to get in with your comrades at a later point. At least that, that was my experience. In her next film, Sean Young played Harrison Ford's love interest, right as he was becoming the biggest star on the planet. The movie uh, Indiana Jones came out when we were working on that movie, and okay. he was very proud that it made a lot of money on the first weekend. <laughs> you know, I remember he had, he had made it, but it hadn't come out yet. So, how I booked it. I, I did an interview and in reading, and I didn't do very well in the first one, and I called my agent up and I said, I didn't do very well. I said, can you get me in again? He said, okay, I'll try. Because I didn't understand the script. It was like Voight Kampf and this and that. And I was just like really confused and really young and I didn't, I didn't really understand it. I couldn't quite grasp it. And I hadn't read the book. And uh, so I did get another interview and I uh, read the book and then, <laughs> and then read the script again a few times and thought, okay, I can try to understand this. So that helped a lot, having a second chance to, to go in. That second chance got her the role of Rachel, a replicant with an all-too-human heart. It's a character so fascinating they even, spoiler alert, brought her back for Blade Runner 2049. For Miss Young, working with visionary director Ridley Scott meant she even gained some unexpected skills. I remember Ridley feeding me cigarettes. <laughs> you know? Because I didn't smoke, and I learned how to smoke on that movie, and... And one of the problems was, I remember that I needed to look older or be more sophisticated than I was because I was only 20, so. Wow. <laughs> I was sort of playing 28, so I was playing older than I was, so he's always trying to make me sound more mature. And I, and I think I sort of have a flat voice anyway, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think that might have been part of why I got the part because I can kind of be kind of, I don't know, what do you think, whatever, you know, so. <laughs> Um, he fed me a lot of cigarettes and would talk to me on the set. I remember that a lot to kind of lower my voice because mm. when you smoke a lot of cigarettes, your voice gets like a lot lower. And my voice was always like excitable at 20, so I would go, ah, you know. So he fed me a lot of cigarettes and then talked to me and would sort of kind of I think three or four cigarettes later, I would end up going on to and actually getting into it. And he, Ridley was always very attentive to me, a lot more so than I, I actually even understood at the time. 35 years after its initial release, Blade Runner remains a benchmark of science fiction and art direction. 
But when it first arrived in theaters, its box office was far from out of this world. Michael Dealey, who was the British producer on it, considered it a dismal failure mm. at the time of release. He was just devastated, actually. He was like, ah, and it was $45 million. I mean, I remember hearing that it cost $45 million to make Blade Runner, and that was this massive sum of money, you know. I think it opened to six is what I read. Yeah. So, that so must everybody even back was then. like <laughs> not happy about the amount of money that it made at the time. And then, of course, it went on to become a classic, yeah. cult kind of classic. But, And I'm sure they've made money on it now, and they're all happy now. But at the time it was released, it was, it was not considered um, a big success. But it, you know what? I remember feeling like it was ahead of its time. I mean, I remember the first time... I saw it, and I was just like, I saw it for the first time when I did looping, when I had to do voiceover work and, and go and fix certain kinds of dialogue. And I remember looking at it going, wow, you know, because I never got to see any of it as we were shooting it. And I just remember thinking, wow, you know, like this is amazing, right? And then when it didn't do as well as everybody had hoped for or expected in 1982, because we made it in 80, and it got released in 82 because they spent a whole year doing the special effects, a whole right. year doing that. Um, we shot it for like four months, and then they took another year to do the special effects and whatnot. And everybody expected it to be a blockbuster because that was sort of the model for... Those were the new days of that kind of blockbuster. That you, If you didn't have a blockbuster, you didn't have a, a picture, you know, just different kind of model at the time so it didn't do well when it came out they were kind of disappointed blade runner could have just been an ambitious box office failure but 10 years after its initial release a new version of blade runner reached the theaters it's a true director's cut going back to ridley scott's original vision the ending was darker the wall-to-wall voiceover was removed and critics and fanboys alike swooned but in sean young's case she still prefers the original I think the first one still, but I like the last one too because the the uh, quality is really good in the last one in terms of the visuals. But it was always pretty stunning, wasn't it? The visuals on that on that movie. Harrison didn't like the voiceover. Uh, he was all like pissy about it. He did. He never wanted to do the voiceover, but he did it. And in my opinion, it was really funny because when you listen to the voiceover in the in the original, he's like, ah. They don't advertise for killers in a newspaper. That was my profession. Ex-cop. Ex-blade runner. Ex-killer. I'd quit because I'd had a belly full of killing. But then I'd rather be a killer than a victim. Replicants weren't supposed to have feelings. Neither were blade runners. What the hell was happening to me? He's just so flat, and I think he was trying to like piss him off, like just be as flat as he can be, because he really didn't want to do the voiceover. So he does, he does this really horribly flat, but it worked against him. It was just so Humphrey Bogart, and it just, it just totally worked. Sometimes I wonder what strange fate brought me out of the storm to that house that stood alone in the shadows. As I probed into its mysteries, every clue told me a different story. But each had the same ending. Murder. 
I love the original, but I think it's just because there's a nostalgia in me remembering the original and, and when I was 21 when it came out, you know. It was just like, ah. It's like it, it was Humphrey Bogart, you know, that voiceover to me. You know what? I think this version is good, too. We saw this at the... Um, Comic-Con a couple of years ago or whatever mm-hmm. it was when Ridley came out with his final, final, the absolute final. And I, I missed the voiceover. I like the voiceover because I, I like those older movies, the black and white movies like with Humphrey Bogart. And I don't like movies that do overuse voiceovers because now a lot of movies are like let me tell the story by doing a voiceover you know which is stupid because you could you should be able to as a filmmaker tell a story and not even have anybody talk you know as far as i'm concerned you should be able to do that but i liked the voiceover in blade runner director ridley scott has made what feels like an infinite number of remarkable films alien gladiator Thelma and louise black hawk down the martian nice Though Miss Young discovered that his perfectionism included an unorthodox approach to crafting her performance. One of the things he used to do was, because I was so young, he told the ADs that I had to stay in my little box. And at the time, they didn't have these trailers that they have now all over the place. They had these little huts made out of wood literally that had wheels on them and they used to reel them around and they didn't the huts didn't have a bathroom so you would get out of your hut and you'd have to go walk a few whatever it was to the public bathrooms there's like a bunch of different bathrooms on this lot that were here but it's changed now right and there was an air conditioner in your little hut and that little huts looked like camp you know what i mean like little camp little huts right Well, Ridley left instructions that I was to be confined to my hut. And his reasoning in his own mind, I asked him later, was he wanted me to feel unconnected to humanity, like really, you know, isolated. He wanted me to feel really isolated and not relaxed and not comfortable. And that was his thing. He didn't want me to feel comfortable. And I remember bribing the ADs. (laughs) <laughs> and saying, you've got to let me out of here. I am going crazy in here. It's four months in here. Mm-hmm. You know, I said, give me a radio. They, he won't find out. I promise you, he won't find out. I had to, like, convince them that I, they wouldn't, he really would not find out that I was on the loose on the lot. <laughs> because I, I, I couldn't stay in there all day long, you know, in this, little, in this little hut. I was just going crazy, and it was like four and a half months. So they would give me a radio. The 80s were really sweet. And I would have my radio, and I would hear everything that was going on with my radio, and I would go and I would check out other lots, other studio, other you know, stages and stuff, and see what was going on, because if I had to stay in that hut all, all day long for after about a month and a half, I was like, okay, guys, you can't keep me in this fucking hut all day long, you know? I mean, come on, you know? So they, we made a little deal, but all, the only thing was is that I was, they, they knew, and I knew that if anything happened and I was found out, I couldn't say who it was. I mean, they would all deny it. So I said, I'm not going to do that if I get caught. We won't be naming names, all right? You know? So that's, that's how I survived the last three months of that shoot was the ADs. It gave me my freedom. 
Even when Sean Young didn't see eye to eye with certain directors, she'd still jump at the chance to work with good ones again. In the end, the play's the thing. Shakespeare. The best quality a director can have is to make a fucking good movie. You know what I mean? You know, period. It's like, be an asshole. I don't care. Just at the end of the day, make me a good movie. Don't make me some piece of shit that I'm going to be embarrassed about. (laughs) You know what I mean? If you want to be an asshole, be an asshole. If you want to be sweet, be sweet. Be whatever you need to be. But make me a good movie at the end of the day that I can go to see and be proud of. Because as an actor, we're not in control of that. We We are having to show up for you I don't care what kind of asshole you are if you make me a good movie. All is forgiven. You know what I mean? All is forgiven at the end of the day. Make me a good movie. That's the best quality you can have as a director. Make me a good movie. And if I'm in it, make me look good. You know? (laughs) You know? That's the best thing you can do as a director. For Sean Young, landing her first roles in Hollywood felt like a, like a sprint. But she discovered that staying on top was a lot more like a marathon. My best years as an actress were from like 1981 to 1987 or 88. I think I'm a really wonderful actress, but I'm not, I'm not a really wonderful politician. Mm. And I'm not real good at bullshit, and I'm not real good at parties, you know. I'm just not. I'm just I've never been been good. And so one of the things as I get older is is I realize um <laughs> this is strange to say, but really if you think you're supposed to be at a certain level in this business, like hey, I'm talented. I should be at a certain level in this business. It's it's all kind of a um a, kind of a ridiculous thought if you're not willing to do the work that the people who are at that level are willing to do. And so at a certain point, I kind of recognized that I wasn't willing to do the work necessary to maintain these contacts and to maintain these friendships and to maintain these relationships, as they're called, you know. Um, It's important. What I wish I had known earlier in life is reputation is everything, because mine got destroyed, which you know, happened, but I didn't really understand the value of a reputation at that point in my life at, at age 27 or whatever it was when my reputation got destroyed. And you can have your reputation destroyed and have nothing even to do with it. It can happen beside you and have nothing, you have nothing to do with it. It's like it happened and you had no relationship with that, you know? It, it can be destroyed regardless of any of your own behavior. That was a really difficult thing for me. In the business, relationships um, at high levels, like A-list and all of that kind of stuff, it, there's a certain high school mm-hmm. prom night about it. You know what I mean? There's a little bit of uh, immaturity, uh, you know, emotional immaturity among the people who do well in the business. At least that's been my perspective. And a certain coldness. Um, Certainly not, like, I couldn't say that I find this business filled with down-to-earth people, <laughs> you know? I mean, I really don't, I don't find that. That's not been my experience. And, and so, at a certain point, recognizing that my aptitude for show business wasn't as great 
as maybe my ability to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, like maybe my talent was fine. And that was all in order, but my aptitude for the business wasn't wasn't nearly the same as my 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 actual talent. You know, and that I think is an important thing to remember if you have ambitions. Is that it's not just talent. You know, talent's great. It's wonderful to have talent. And I think you have to walk in the door with talent, but it's also your aptitude for dealing with lots of different types of people who are at lots of different stages of their own involvement. And and some of them aren't necessarily on the same level as you might be. And your job might end up being, hello, you might need to, you know, lift a few people up here and there and and uh, and usually lifting people up requires patience, and I didn't have a lot of that either. I'm not real patient with bullshit. And there's a lot of bullshit in show business. So I mean, you really have to have an aptitude for BS, or else you know you don't you don't you don't go far if you don't have a good aptitude for that. You know, I mean, it's important to have BS skills. It really is. You know. No, I mean it is. It is. It's important. Miss Young described that in Hollywood, it's hard to keep your feet on the ground when there's literally no ceiling. The reason people like this business is because you can make $150 million. Like Jim Carrey, he made $20 million bucks on after uh, Ace Ventura. Right. He went on to make $20 million bucks for his... I forget what film it was, but, um, you know, and I'm like, Jim, are you kidding me? I mean, he was like the first person to make 20 million bucks for a movie. So the stakes become very high for people in the sense that it's an industry that can provide you with no ceilings. You know, you can go to a place where, where if you were in school for whatever, whatever, you'd know maybe you'd make this much money a year, you'd make this much money a year, whatever it is you would make. In show business, you can make something outrageous that has no ceiling just because you've done this or you've done that or you're connected with these people. So this is why people get nutty because there's no ceiling. There's, there's absolutely, it's like you can, you can, you can move into a medium that doesn't have any walls if you have the talent and you have the ability to deal with bullshit and you have the ability to understand politics and you understand the stakes of the people on the level who are investing in that, understand their point of view, you know what I mean? And you can bring all of those elements together and make it work for you. You can, you can find yourself in a situation where you're in an industry that has no ceilings. That's unheard of in any uh, other industry in, in, in most cases. You know what I mean? It's, I don't know of any other industries that, that do that, do you? I mean, I mean, most industries have a top right. level and you can't kind of go above that. You know, you make 20 grand a year, 30, whatever that is, whatever that ends up being, it, you know, you expect that. But in show business, it's, it's a wild card. Yeah. When I think, too, you have actors who are expected to open themselves up so vulnerably, you know, and then be completely normal. So And, and also be able to walk in a room at a party and be able to negotiate BS really well. It's like, right. uh, I'm not supposed to be honest here, 
but I'm supposed to be honest there. I'm not supposed <laughs> to do this here, but I'm supposed to be able to do that here. So it becomes a, a, those skills I wish I'd understood better at an earlier age, but you learn them and your your life experiences growing up and who you are and what you, what you are. I mean, I mean, I'm Ohio corn-fed country type girl, you know, and I didn't have any nepotism. I mean, I didn't have anybody helping me. I, I got in all, all on my own. And um, and it all happened very quickly for me in the very beginning. So it was a, it was not a very edifying situation. Like I said, it wasn't like it, it, it educated me on what it was like to become spoiled. <laughs> But not what it was like to be forced with facing situations that were demanding that I didn't really know how to deal with. That came later in life. Miss Young also bemoans how the industry often relies on decision by committee. It's one of the reasons Blade Runner was altered before it was released. And it's what makes Miss Young considerably less excited about working on bigger projects. Studios, TV companies, it's committee. It's a committee of people. It's a round table of like however many people, 10 people, 15 people who decide together what's what movie's going to be made or you know what budget's going to be decided upon or who's going to be in it or whatever. That'd be like being in a family of 15 people like brothers and sisters, right? Can you imagine who's going to be trying to dominate, you know, and who's going to be trying to say their point of view is the right point of view. And so it really just becomes this back and forth of like 15, 10 people deciding blah, blah, blah. So it's a lot of blah, blah, blah. Isn't it better that just one person gets to decide? Like in the French days, the the auteur, <laughs> you know, the auteur, like what's his name? Jean Cocteau. You, you know what I'm saying? Like one person says, this is the way it's going to be. This is the movie we're making. We're not in a committee situation here. I'm the boss. And this is how we're going to make it. Okay. Because it's my vision and that's the way it's going to be. It's like, how many movies are made like that? It's all committee. You got this asshole and this asshole you got to answer to. <laughs> You know, I mean, and that's not a good situation for art. That's a committee. That's what's made movies go down in quality, in my point of view. And this is one of the reasons why, why independent movies were so popular at a certain point. Like um, Hillary, uh, she did uh, Boys Don't Cry. Yeah. yeah, and she did that for like hardly any money. She's in my spin class. She's... Um, <laughs> You know, and she did something that she could do and not have a committee decide how it's going to be, you know? So a lot of these backdoor independents that end up being studio-released pictures, this is one of the ways you can, you know, swim this, this business, you know? That's one of the ways. But, yeah, it's very hard to get a true vision without a bunch of people telling you, you know, what you got to do. A true vision being able to have your movie made how you want it to be without, you know, this is why BS skills are very, very important in, in negotiating how you deal with people, you know? It's very hard. Over the years, Sean Young has learned how to pick projects that excite her and interest her rather than just picking projects for the money. I just recently got offered something in London and it was so depressing, I read it, they offered all this money and then it was all like, 
vampire blood, sex, drugs, coke. And I thought, oh, God, are you kidding? And I read it and I just, I wilted. I just thought, oh, big money, no, not a good product, right? Then a friend of mine sent me a script, really wonderful script. Real story, wonderful, wonderful part. No, no money, zero like shit money, right? And I thought I'd rather, I'd rather do this because at this point, and, and you make decisions. I mean, like in my, I guess in my 40s, I did some movies purely based on the fact that I needed the money because I have two children, and I thought better do this, you know. It's not a, it's not a great thing to have to do a movie for money. It's, it's not. Um, but at the same time, it's it's great to be able to be offered something and be able to actually say, okay, I'll do this shit for the money. You know, I mean, it's it's a gift regardless of the quality of it. You know, but to be able to do a great movie for no money is a better option than doing a really, you know, huge budget movie that you hate. But actors have to do what they do. And when you get older, you get less opportunity to do that as well. I mean, my choices in my 20s were different than my 30s, different than my 40s, and, and, and I'm 51, and they're different, they're different now. So, so I base it on, on like what Betty Davis said, which is take the best offer you have at the time you have it, you know, like what you can bear, what you can stand. Looking back at her career, Miss Young sees how she could have approached things differently. But a lot of what it takes to make it didn't really interest her then, and it really doesn't interest her now. At 51, I would do a lot of things differently than I did at 20 or 30 or 40, you know what I mean? But at the same time, it's like I'm not perfect, but I'm just perfect as I am. You know, it's just, it's hard to accept that about a person yourself. It's like, it's hard for a a person to accept the bad things about themselves in a peaceful spirit. But that's the work I do, you know, on a daily basis. That's what I do. And, and, and I wish I could have been more politically correct. I just wasn't able to, you know, I just never was able to do that. I, I just wasn't a real good BS artist, you know, I just never was. And I'm not today. To this day, I'm not, you know, and, 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 and ultimately, this is an interesting thing, which is sometimes, you know, in my private meditations, I go, boo-hoo, I wanted Julia Roberts' career, you know, but at the same time, I was, I was never willing to do what she did, you know, the work she put in and the, the people she met and the contacts she maintained and the, you know, and the effort that she put into it, I was never willing to do that. It just never was something I, I was, had the hunger for, you know, so... So it's it's in reverse. It's like, you know, don't do the crime if you can't do the time. It's like, don't whine <laughs> if you can't put your effort in. You know what I mean? It's like, if you want it, then go for it. But you got to want it, you know? And, you, and if you don't want it, be clear about that to yourself. It's, it, it makes it easier. I think it's important to hear her perspective. She's 100% correct. This industry is made for certain people. And if you're not 100% in it, then it's a hobby. So if you're not willing to go completely through the race to BS when you need a BS, to network when you need a network, to make friends with people you don't necessarily want to make friends with, you might as well just consider it a hobby and do it in your hometown. Yeah, it's like so much of the work is not the acting or the writing or the directing. It's 
making sure you're in a position where you can do the writing or the directing or the acting. And yeah, I think John Young for years did it. And then at some point was like, I'm good. I'm good. She doesn't need to be that person. She is not that person. No. And she's okay with it. And I think that's what the lesson is. Yeah. What you can take away is that you either look at what she's saying and say, oh, that's me. Maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I'm not cut out for this. Or it makes you want to do it more. And on that note, I want to thank you, Sean Young, for being so honest with us. And thanks to all you guys out there for listening. That's Ariel Seagard. He's Eric Connor. And this episode was based on the Q&A moderated by Jeff Grace. To watch the full interview or to see our other Q&As, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash New York Film Academy. This episode was written by Eric Connor, edited and mixed by Christian Hayden. Our creative director is David Andrew Nelson, who also produced this episode with Christian Hayden and Eric Connor. Executive produced by Tova Leiter, Sean Sherlock, and Dan Mackler. A special thanks to our events department, Saja Johnson, and the staff and crew who made this possible. To learn more about our programs, check us out at nyfa.edu. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. See See you you next time. time. This test will determine if you're human or replicant. A train is moving from Omaha East at a speed of 75 miles per hour. Another train leaves Kiev going 10 miles per hour. At what point in the Atlantic Ocean will the two trains meet? Tuesday? Close enough. <laughs>